The Soundtrack Show with David W. Collins is about to begin. The score to Back to the Future gives us more than just adrenaline. It highlights relationships, describes characters, and even helps us follow the plot. All in a style that actually resembles the sound of ticking clocks and symbolically men's fractured timelines. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and on this episode, we are taking our final look at Back to the Future, a movie from 1985 by Universal Pictures, directed by Robert Zemeckis, with a score by Alan Silvestri. During our previous looks at Back to the Future, we discussed the main themes to this movie, their structure and their symbolism, and we took a really close look at the song score and some of the more prominent source cues in the movie music that defined the 1950s and the 1980s. Today we're going to roll up our sleeves and take the time to appreciate the craftsmanship that went into the finer details of the score by examining key moments in the movie and how the music makes them truly special. But before we get back to the orchestral score by Alan Silvestri, I actually wanted to take a moment to talk about a detail that I was fascinated by as a kid in Back to the Future. It's one that takes us back to the Johnny B. Good sequence at the high school dance. Though Marvin Barry and the Starlighters, that fictional band that's actually playing the dance, though they had never heard the tune Johnny B. Good before when Marty McFly calls it out, somehow, in a way that I didn't understand when I first saw this movie years ago as a kid, they were able to just jump right in and somehow magically play along. They're given only these instructions by Marty moments before he starts playing. All right, this is, uh, this is an oldie, but, uh, well, it, it's an oldie where I come from. All right, guys, uh, listen, this is the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? That's it. Just a blues riff and B. Okay. Well, those of you who are musicians that are listening to this show might know exactly what this means, but as a young person, before I studied music, I had no idea. It was just movie magic to me. So, when I finally learned about the history of 12-bar blues as a musical form, and what that really was from a musical perspective, it actually made me appreciate this sequence so much more. So, for the uninitiated, if one is a musician, and one is just asked to jam, no sheet music, no music at all, no rehearsal. Just give us a key or not. We'll just figure it out and go. One, two, three, four, go. It's actually a pretty standard expectation for musicians to be able to do that. Especially, certainly gigging musicians at, at like a high school dance or, you know, at a restaurant or a club or something. And certainly a gigging musician in 1955 would have played their share of the blues, big band, swing, country, and more. And they would have multiple band leaders that they were used to just giving them these improvised stop time hits, uh, improvised starts and standard stops. 
In other words, we'll all just figure out how to start and stop, you know, with some standards that we've heard over the years. But let's just go. You know, we'll give each other head nods and signals with hand signals and things like that. And Marty McFly actually does this in the movie. He kind of signals, you know, just with the neck of his guitar when a, when a downbeat's going to happen. All of these subtle things musicians pick up on. So, Johnny Be Good is actually a standard 12-bar blues. It's just at a very lively tempo, and it's guitar-driven. But 12-bar blues breaks down like this. If someone says, hey, play blues in B, then that means the whole band is jamming on a chord that's based on the note B. And in this case, it's a, it's a major minor seventh or dominant seventh chord that defines that blues sound. They jam on this key for four bars, right? Or four counts of four. One, two, three, four. Two, two, three, four. Three, two, three, four. Four, two, three, four. Now, Blues can take a lot of different forms, and there can be a ton of chord substitutions that spice it up, kind of like adding different seasoning when you cook and experimenting. But the gist of it is that you hover around this main chord for the first four bars, okay? But almost universally, and this is what leads to these musicians just knowing how to play Johnny Be Good, starting at bar five, you would all move to the four chord together. Trust me on this, it's a thing. So in the key of B, the whole band would instinctively know to move from a B7 to an E7. And then at the seventh bar, they'd go back to the B7 for two more bars. And then at bar nine, the whole band expresses some form of the chord based on the fifth scale degree or the dominant, right? Which would be this. In this case, it's an F sharp seven. They do that for two bars. And then sometimes they'd go back to the four chord like this. But they would just basically end back up at the B7 for the last two bars. So, in the case of Johnny Be Good, it's not just leaping movie magic that requires all of us as an audience to suspend our disbelief during this scene. I'm happy to say that, yes, the whole band would have known how to play B7 for four bars, E7 for two bars, back to B7 for two bars, and then the F sharp, you know, and then back to the B7. They all would have known how to do that. And then wash, rinse, guitar solo, and repeat. I'll count Johnny Be Good out for you. One, two, three, four. Two, two, three, four. Three, four, five. Now on the four chord, two, two bars. Now back to the one. Now to the five chord, F sharp seven, and then back to the one. And there's your 12 bars, and it starts over again right now. Four chord. And back to the one. And now to the five. And now to the one. Twelve bars. That's twelve bar blues in its basic form. It's a common language. And if you go back and listen to it, you'll actually hear twelve bar blues all over the place, and not just in the blues, but also in early rock and roll, especially in early rock and roll. A great example, we brought up Billy Haley's Rock Around the Clock. It's all based on 12-bar blues. One. Here's the four chord. Back to the one. Now to the five. And now to the one. 
Anyway, I thought that was a fun detail to share with you because for me, when I made that connection years ago as a budding musician, I became even more fascinated with that particular scene, that Johnny Be Good scene. It made me enjoy the premise of the movie and how it treats music just that much more. But I want to get back to where we started. That great, great score by Alan Silvestri. I went ahead and started tracking the two main themes of Back to the Future, and their use in the movie surprised me. Besides what we discussed earlier, that the beginning of Back to the Future is almost musicless, and by the way, if you were to pop in Back to the Future 2 sometime, you'll notice that this is not the case with Back to the Future 2. That movie is wall-to-wall Silvestri and uses source music in a totally different and clever way. Anyway, besides the scoreless beginning of the first Back to the Future, when the score really finally does kick in, the number of times each one, each theme was used is somewhat revealing and very interesting. The first theme, what I call the tritone theme, is by far the dominating theme in the movie. It's actually almost impossible to count how many times it's audibly heard because it exists as fragments in so many other moments. But in terms of big, recognizable moments where it's clearly audible, this theme is heard well over 30 times, or I should say over 30 instances, as some instances have the theme repeat multiple times in rapid succession. Some of the key moments of when you actually hear this theme in the movie include, of course, the DeLorean reveal, uh, just in a very, very small way. In a subtle way, in the military version of the theme. And then really building to that car chase, as we discussed. You hear it as he's escaping Peabody's farm. You hear it when he realizes that Lion Estates isn't there anymore back in 1955. We, of course, hear it uh, in the town square in 1955. We hear it when Marty's hit by a car instead of George McFly. Stella! Another one of these damn kids jumped in front of my car! Come on out here, help me take him in the house! and so many more times towards the end. But what's interesting is how other themes and other great musical moments kind of grow out of that main tritone theme. For example, after the dance, when Doc is waiting for Marty to arrive at the clock tower, you get this great interaction between Doc Brown and the orchestra as he exclaims, Damn, where is that kid? Damn, where is that kid? That's always been a favorite moment of mine. Well, what's interesting about that figure 
is that it's just an inverted version of the main theme. If you take this third note of the main theme and you place it down an octave, meaning it's still the same note, just lower in the register, right? If you take that third note and you take it down an octave, you get that sound. This is a clever reuse of the main theme to drive tension, while still in keeping with that tritone time travel theme. Another great use is actually as part of Doc Brown's theme. Now, before I get to it, I want to just play a few examples of Doc Brown's music in general. Notice the pulsing tempo, like a quick-moving, frantic clock. And when I say clock, I don't mean our modern digital smartphone clocks. I mean old-school, mechanical, moving, ticking parts type of clock. Doc Brown's music just ticks away with this frantic energy. Here's his scene at Twin Pines Mall when we first meet him. Listen to those pitch-bending brass instruments as Doc is about to warp time and space itself. Like the main theme, Doc is just a little off, in a good way. But yeah, the pitch-bending brass kind of imitates what he's about to do with time. Now, this next scene is actually back in 1955, where they're discussing 1.21 gigawatts. Sorry, I meant gigawatts. Again, there's that frantic imitation of a ticking clock. But did you hear something else in there? This six-note high-pitched phrase. This is also outlining the main idea of the main theme. Fifths turning into tritones, starting out with that perfect interval, and then skewing it into a tritone. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. Throughout the score, we hear this sound. A twinkling, magical texture that signifies a shift, or a shift to come, in the space-time continuum, or the timeline. Given to us by what sounds like soft mallets and bells, and perhaps even a little bit of synthesizer. This is a great example of musical storytelling. Rather than explaining with words that a shift is taking place or something important is happening, Zemeckis and Silvestri use a quick musical shorthand for this magic. And again, it seems to come from the main tritone theme, as it features these fifths disrupted by tritones. Earlier, I mentioned that Doc Brown's theme resembles a ticking mechanical clock. These twinkling melodies also resemble a clock in a way, in my mind. 
If you've ever traveled to Europe and you've seen some of the great clocks or glockenspiels and their wonderful chimes and their design, you can kind of hear how these twinkling chiming tones also resemble clocks. I'd like to also point out another ticking clock type of rhythmic motif that can be found in the movie. Some have credited this theme that I'm about to play to the villain, Biff. And while it does underscore some of his appearances, it's also used at times when he's not on screen. But either way, it certainly represents doom and gloom. And actually, if you listen to it, ask yourself this. Does it remind you of Dies Irae even just a little bit? Let's take a listen to this darker, clock-ticking rhythmic motif. Here it is the first time we hear it during the skateboard sequence. Right here. It's like a modified Dies Irae. Biff, by the way, starts out as a musicless bully. Just a bully. But by the time we get to the scene at the car, the implications of his evil are very clear. And as we know, in later films, he develops a penchant for murder as he gains power and wealth. So the music here portrays this psychopath perfectly. After playing and discussing something so dark, I want to chat about the antidote to this darkness, which is that other main theme in Back to the Future, that big heroic theme that we've attributed to Marty McFly, our protagonist, and the heroism that he displays throughout the movie. I mentioned my theme tracker earlier and how often the main tritone theme is used, but I haven't discussed this one yet. Well, it's used a lot less than that main tritone theme about half as much by my count, roughly 17 times, and that's including the end credits. But while this may feel to us like the movie skews a bit darker or more mysterious as a result, I'd actually argue the opposite. To me, the first Back to the Future is the most optimistic of those three films. And while there are multiple reasons why I think this is true, one of the biggest reasons is because of how and when this big heroic theme is used. It's given to us as a release right when we need it. Here are a couple of great moments when we get that theme. We get it in that car chase the first time we see Marty do something really heroic when it's moving to 88 miles per hour. Then we get it as he's just skateboarding away. He turns that push cart into a skateboard and he's escaping Biff and his, and his bullies. And right when it seems like Marty's gonna get clobbered, he does this really cool move where he climbs through the car and skateboards through the back. It's choreographed really well. These are all great moments, 
But to me, one of the most meaningful moments in the film, the entire movie, one that really highlights the beauty of the relationships in this movie, is right after George McFly finds the courage to do the right thing and lays out Biff flat with a punch that saves the day and alters the course of his own fear-driven life. And what music plays when he asks Lorraine if she's okay? Let's listen. The movie's heroic theme plays. Marty's theme is now, in this moment, his father's theme. And by coming into his father's life at a critical time, Marty, out of sheer force of will, helps to transform his own father into a better person. Ah, that moment really gets me. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. All of the movie's themes seem to culminate in the clock tower sequence towards the end of the movie. This is where Silvestri shows us his genius. Here's a quote from the Entrada soundtrack liner notes from Michael Matticino. Quote, The indisputable musical centerpiece of the Back to the Future score is the lengthy clock tower sequence, during which most of the recurring themes are employed, including the threatening Biff music, used effectively to add to the tension. Silvestri's achievement with the sequence is remarkable, not only impeccably timed, but integral to the action to such a degree that it takes on an epic and even mythic quality. End quote. Let's go ahead and take a listen. You're late! You have no concept of time! Hey, come on! I had to change! You think I'm going back in that, that suit suit? God, the old man really came through. It worked. What? He laid out Biff in one punch. I didn't know he had it in him. He's never served to Biff in his life. Ever? No, why? What's the matter? All right. Let's set your destination time. Oh, the military march is back, and it's matured. This is the exact time you left. Let's send you back. At exactly the same time! It starts out like the beginning of the movie where it appeared, but the tritone theme and Marty's theme are tossed back and forth. Oh, I painted a white line on the street way over there! That's where you start from! I've calculated the precise distance, taking into account the acceleration speed and wind resistance retroactive from the moment the lightning strikes, which will be exactly 7 minutes and 22 seconds. When this alarm goes off, you hit the gas. Right! Yeah, it just keeps going back and forth between the main tritone theme and Marty's theme here. It's really cool. Well, I guess that's everything. Back and forth twice. Thanks. Thank you! In about 30 years, I hope so. Don't worry. As long as you hit that wire with a connecting hook at precisely 88 miles an hour, 
The instant the lightning strikes the tower, everything will be fine. Right. And now what's this? Everything goes dark and minor. What's the meaning of this? You'll find out in 30 years! It's about the future, isn't it? It's information about the future! I warn you about this, kid! Suddenly, we're treated to really the only disagreement that these two friends have over this letter here, and we get treated to a minor key version, very briefly, of the heroic Marty theme. Damn it, Doc, why did you have to tear up that letter? I only had more time. There's that modified DS era, or what we were calling Biff's theme. Wait a minute. I got all the time I want. I got a time machine. I can just go back early. Moving forward. Then the big moment gives us Marty's theme. Then silence. Did it work? It did! And we celebrate with Marty's theme, this time over Doc. They did it together. What an amazing, amazing piece of music. We have a couple of other themes that I'd like to point out. The first is a four-note little motif that plays every time our characters realize something about their predicament. It's a motif that evokes a sense of discovery, and also it signifies that big things are at stake. We hear it when Doc Brown first sees his own flux capacitor in the time machine back in 1955. And then throughout that sequence, as they realize the heavy gravity of their situation, devising a plan to set everything straight. Interestingly enough, this theme, and one of the reasons I pointed out is if you go and watch future Back to the Future movies, it's used a lot, especially in Back to the Future 2. But the last theme that I want to cover is a bit more emotional. And it really gives this movie a tremendous sense of heart. It perfectly conveys the friendship and love that our main characters have. And in my mind, it makes them very likable and really hits our heartstrings. Let's take a listen to this just wonderful cue as Marty is writing a warning letter to his friend, Doc Brown. Later, we hear this theme again after Doc and Marty reunite in 1985, when Doc, as it turns out, was saved by Marty's letter. 
I love this cue. I love the emotion behind it and how it really evokes a solid, meaningful friendship between Marty and Doc. I mean, let's face it, the two aren't your normal pair of friends. Well, whatever normal means. I should say typical instead. They're not your typical friends. In most social circles, a wacky scientist who conducts experiments with clocks, automated dog feeding machines, giant amplifiers, and more, who has spent his family fortune pursuing his dream of time travel, who actually stole plutonium after promising to build a suitcase bomb for terrorists, supplying them instead with a suitcase filled with used pinball machine parts, is not exactly someone who is welcomed with open arms in most typical social circles. Marty likewise comes from a family that's down on its luck. And other than Doc and Jennifer doesn't seem to have a lot of friends. But these two, who both feel like outcasts, found each other and they support each other. Even though, you know, it's never really explained to us how or why, but they look out for each other. And the music does a lot of the work in terms of describing this friendship to us, especially by way of this theme. It tells us that their quirks are just really only skin deep. Their loyalty and friendship is really what's most important. And it endears us to them strongly, very strongly. The last time we hear this theme is when the realization finally sinks in for Marty and the audience that Marty's reality in 1985 has been forever altered. For the better. And it plays when he sees the 4x4 truck of his dreams parked in the garage, waxed by the vanquished villain himself, Biff. Jennifer Parker walks up, and for a moment at least, all is right with the world. Now, I want to point out some really neat things about this theme. Like other themes in the movie, it actually grows out of the tritone theme. Only it's not unsettling. It's actually made that theme whole. just drops the tritone down to another perfect interval. You see, by disrupting the timeline, all has finally become right with the 1985 world. The tritone is dropped to another perfect interval, a perfect fourth. Here's the main theme. Here's the second theme. Two perfect intervals, a fifth and a fourth. By the way, there are only three perfect intervals in all of Western music, and the other is the aforementioned octave. All has been made right. Their friendship is right. Their family's love is made right. And this theme, musically and thematically, writes the unsettled disruption that is the main theme to Back to the Future. 
That is, until Doc Brown comes back with a cautionary tale about the future and Marty and Jennifer's kids, but I'll save that for a future episode about part two, which, unlike our characters in the movie, we hopefully won't have to wait 30 years for. The last thing I want to point out about this theme is that it evokes a classic American composer named Aaron Copland. Aaron Copland invented a sound that is commonly referred to as a uniquely American orchestral sound. You see, the United States, for the most part, didn't really identify with a sound of its own, musically, largely until the 20th century. Before that, most of the orchestral music heard in the United States came from Europe. Composers like Antonin Dvorak and other Europeans greatly contributed to the development of U.S. orchestral music, but really, it was concert hall composers like Aaron Copland with his wide open intervals. Those, that's what I mean by wide open intervals. That's not necessarily Copland, but that sort of sound. His wide open intervals in his compositions kind of evoked the giant plains and wide open spaces of the American heartland. And that, that really started creating a uniquely American sound. Pieces of his like Appalachian Spring and Fanfare for the Common Man are great examples of this. I want to, I want to take a brief listen to some of these. Uh, let's listen to Appalachian Spring, which tells the story of a spring celebration of American pioneers after they completed construction on a new Pennsylvania farmhouse. Let's listen to Fanfare for the Common Man, which was written in response to the U.S.'s entry into World War II and was inspired by former Vice President Henry A. Wallace's speech that proclaimed the dawning of the century of the common man in 1942. This sound, which may be familiar to many of you, has been used by film composers for generations. Even Copland himself tried his hand at film scoring, by the way. His style stirs feelings of longing, of emotion, maybe of home and hearth, and certainly stands in great contrast to that tritone-centered main theme of Back to the Future. Yet, as I illustrated, it is musically and thematically related by Silvestri. 
I mean, Silvestri must have really studied Copeland when he was writing these parts of the movie, as they certainly evoke that longing when many of us listen. I want to close with a letter from Brett. He writes, Hi, David. My name is Brett from Long Island, New York. I wanted to write to you and say how much I've enjoyed your shows. I'm often cautious when listening to an analysis of something I love, whether it's a book, movie, or music. I'm concerned that it will reduce my enjoyment of it because the analysis is unemotional and coldly academic. Your shows haven't been like that. It's wonderful to hear a smart analysis of something done by someone who absolutely loves the work they're discussing. Thank you for your shows. Thanks, Brad. That's really nice. I'm wondering, he continues, I'm wondering if you have plans to do an analysis of any military-themed movie music. I've always been moved by the beautiful music written for Gettysburg from 1993 and A Bridge Too Far. John Addison, the composer for A Bridge Too Far, fought in the battle. I'm a combat veteran myself, and I've always thought these two movie soundtracks did a wonderful job of capturing not just the excitement of large military operations, but the personal determination of each soldier to do their duty and not let their fellow soldiers down, no matter the cost. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to more of your shows. Brett. Thank you so much for writing, Brett, and thank you very, very much for your years of military service. While I don't know the scores for either of those films as well as I should, I'm definitely going to add them to the list. And as far as military-themed movies, I would absolutely love to do a military-themed movie score, as there are some wonderful, impactful, and emotional scores out there. If you or anyone else have any other suggestions, please keep them coming. Thank you so much for writing, and thanks to all of you for your emails and social media posts. Please drop us a line at the Soundtrack Show at HowStuffWorks.com, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundtrack Show HSW, or on Twitter at Soundtrack HSW. I'm also on Twitter at David W. Collins. This concludes our look at Back to the Future, but we'll be back with more great music here on the Soundtrack Show very soon. Thank you. <laughs>